one of the people that inspired me to get back into painting and doing art. So I'm just going to leave it at that. Thanks, guys. Chris, I'm an alcoholic. Thank Thanks everybody for being here. I'm a thank you. Thank you for asking me to share my story. Um, I always get kind of raw a few days before I share my story. It's probably like the eighth or ninth time I've done it, and it's it's nerve-wracking, but you know, just a microcosm for how this thing works. Taking action always feels better afterwards. Um, and I always like to start it off with a quote that I think is really sums up me and that's a quote from the 12 and 12 page 64 almost without exception alcoholics are tortured by loneliness even before our drinking got bad and people began to cut us off nearly all of us suffered the feeling that we didn't quite belong and uh, even right now when I read that quote it's just like this shock wave that goes through my heart you know because that's just that's how I felt from the beginning as far back as I can remember I just I was a very nervous kid Grew up in uh, Hilton Head, South Carolina. I'm not familiar with it. It's a small island off the coast of South Carolina. Um, very narrow culturally, conservative. Um, and I grew up in the 80s. Um, my mother's white, my father's black, and he wasn't around. Um, and I found myself in a lot of situations uh, growing up where I just felt too black to be white, too white to be black. This is before you know, 23andMe and Ancestry.com, and it was cute to be mixed and everything like that. It was just, I felt kind of like I just didn't fit in, you know, and even more than that, growing up without my father, there was just this pit that uh, I just felt like I wasn't wanted. And like one of my earliest memories is, I forget how, how old you are when you're T-ball age, but it was at the end, maybe five or six, and it was at the end of the year, and everybody's taking, all the all the kids were taking pictures with their dads and their trophies. And my grandfather was there, but I kept it together. And I just remember once we got back to the car, I just lost it. And it wasn't like I was crying. I was, like, angry, screaming at my mother, like, where is my dad? And, you know, it's really sad for me to remember that. But I just remember, <clears throat> what I do remember is that, that rage that I felt, I mean, five, six years old, I didn't, I didn't feel quite so small anymore. It was like I really felt like, you know what, fuck you, Dad, and you know what, Mom, fuck you, too. Fuck everybody. Who gives a shit? I don't give a fuck. You know, I wasn't cussing, but that's how I felt on a visceral level, and that, that stayed with me. Um, I think that was the first time I ever felt uh, the, the power of, of anger and how it kind of even if it was for a moment, I just didn't feel quite so small. And, you know, I dealt with bullying and, you know, there was uh, where I lived. Is, it, it, Hilton Head's a pretty affluent area to grow up, but, uh, you know, I, my mother was, she was a single mom, and very lo lower middle class, but the neighborhood I was living in were, were two um, government housing neighborhoods right next to it. And there was just a lot of tension there. I remember fights at the bus stop and... There was one kid in particular that picked on me all the time, and one time he stole my bike and then rode it around 
in my neighborhood in front of me to taunt me and stuff like that, man. It was just, just kind of built up. Um, and I was super shy, very, very shy. Um, I think it was like sixth or seventh grade. Um, there was this girl that I really liked that I had a big crush on. Uh, her name was Desiree Diaz. And um, I remember there was one day at the end of school, she, uh, not her, but her friends cornered me at my locker and were like, Desiree really likes you. Would you go out with her? And I was just like, it was like those Alfred Hitchcock movies where it zooms out and zooms in at the same time. And like, there's this eerie music, and I was like, fuck. And then on top of that, she, they said that she wanted me to, she wanted to kiss me at the bus stops in front of everybody. And uh, needless to say, that day I walked home from school. <laughs> Never walked home from school, didn't quite know how to get home from school, but I fucking figured it out. You know, and it was like, ah, it's just, I mean, here it was the girl of my dreams at the time who wanted to kiss me, wanted to go out with me, and I was just too nervous to show up, man. It was in my head, you know, and. Um, I was always drawing, and that, that was a nice escape for me. Uh, and I, uh, athletics were a big deal for me, baseball into soccer, then into roller hockey and ice hockey. And um, thank goodness for, for team sports because that, uh, that really helped, helped me get outside myself and gave me a little bit of discipline. And even a lot of my coaches were like surrogate fathers, and you know, I, I really took to it. It, was, uh, it gave me... a um, it gave me something to focus this crazy energy that I had. And I remember um, the, my behavior in school when I wasn't playing sports and when I was playing sports was drastic. It went from like A's, B's, and C's to like B's, C's, and D's and being in the principal's office and, you know, cutting up in class and just hanging out with the wrong people. Like, I, I just needed an outlet. Um, and sports really provided that for me. My drawing really helped helped me out. I used to do comic books after school with some friends, and it was great, man. Um, and I know once I got a little bit older, like preteen, 12, 13 years old, um, my mother started to divulge the PG versions of why my father wasn't in the picture. And, you know, he was, uh, well, they were um, high school sweethearts. They, they met in early 70s in Virginia, and it wasn't very cool to be in an interracial, you know, relationship back then. So it was like their stuff was real, and she always told me, and I respect her for this. She had every reason to to drag my dad's name through the the mud, but she never did. And um, she'd tell me that they were high school sweethearts, and that she loved them very much, and she did. And you know, she told me that uh, why she left was I was I was still a baby, and my sister, my older sister, she was two and a half. And my father would, he'd black out and he just, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And there was one day where he was getting physical with her and to taunt my mother, he put my sister in a pillowcase and was like swinging around above, her, above his head. And, you know, that's, that's about all she told me about that. And um, that was enough for me to really be like, in my mind and in my heart, like, I don't want to be anything like this, dude. You know, and even more than that, I was... I was super nervous to drink. I was, and I, I laid off drinking for a while until I was about 15 years old, 15, yeah. So I was a freshman in high school, and I remember at the, 
it was going to be Friday. Friday there was going to be a party with all the soccer kids. And um, I remember on Monday I went to the, the captain of the soccer team and I was like, hey, man, will you uh, watch out for me when I drink? Like, I've never done this before. Like, I was, I was nervous. I didn't know what to expect. And I desperately didn't want to be anything like my father. Like, I just... There was something in me that just said, if I drink, then I'm going to be like him, so I don't want to do it. And um, Friday came around, and I went to the party, and everybody's drinking. And I uh, ended up taking a drink, and I just remember like two or three sips, and that first beer, it just like dispelled every fucking fear, anxiety, everything. It was like I'd been living in the middle of Times Square, and everything just kind of stopped, and it was quiet kind of like it is in this room right now and shit I could walk across the room and talk to a girl I wasn't worried about the past I wasn't worried about the future I think in retrospect it was the first time that I was ever fully present just here in my skin like no better no worse I'm just here you know and that made an impact on me and it was like even though I didn't start drinking drinking for a while uh, <clears throat> that made an impact on me and I just remember feeling as though it just felt like I'd found a secret. <laughs> there was a secret something like this, this little ace in my back pocket that I could use. You know, it felt like, it also felt like I was, I don't know, like everybody was in on some joke that I wasn't in, in on, or everybody had their shit together but me. Everybody had it figured out. Everybody was happy and got it together but me. Um, but I didn't feel like that when I drank. Uh, and, um, you know, I continued to play sports. And, uh, you know, one thing I'll say about my mother, which will, I'll, it'll make a lot more sense in, later on, is she was my best friend, and she was someone that I could always talk to about anything. And uh, she's, I mean, she was just, not even just with me, but with everybody, even friends, people that she would meet the first time. She just had this way about, you know, you'd see her and talk to her, and you'd just feel completely, talk, you'd feel completely comfortable talking to her about anything. Like, she just made you feel like you were the only person in the room. Um, and there were so many times where I felt like every, something was pissing me off or I was overwhelmed. Or I was just coming apart at the seams and like within a matter of a few, a few sentences, she could have me back to neutral. Um, and uh, I remember when, when I was younger, she used to wake me and my sister up at night. And because uh, at night, I mean, she would come home and her, her me time was late at night and she would wake me and my sister, even on school night, she would wake us up and she'd be like, Chris, Jackie, come down here. And I'd be coming down, stumbling down the stairs, like head back, like, oh, what the, f what, what, mom, you know? And there was one time, and I'll never forget this, she said, Chris, Jackie, I just want you to know that I don't care if you're, you want to be a janitor. Um, whatever you want to be, I'll love you no matter what. And I just ask that you be the best that you can be at whatever it is. And I remember that well because I, I barely slept that night. And I, just remember, I was probably like eight or nine years old. I was young. And I just felt, I just felt like all the pressure was off. Like there was no, there was no race. There was no competition. Like I didn't have to prove anything. Like. Whatever I wanted to do, I could fail fucking miserably at, ev at everything, anything, and that, that she wasn't going to change. She would just, that, that was unconditional love. I felt that right then and there. And that was just a microcosm for how she always was. And like even, you know, growing up in Hillnet, South Carolina, there was no fucking hockey or anything like that. And we got a, we got a roller hockey team when I was like 12. And um, 
I loved it. I loved hockey. And I remember talking to her. And I was like, man, I want to play in the NHL. And, like, she wouldn't miss a beat. She was like, do it. Do it. You know, and wouldn't long before we were driving back and forth to Charleston, South Carolina, which is kind of equidistant to from here to Houston. We were doing that round trip, like, twice a week. Just That was the closest ice. So we were doing that. And we ended up moving to Atlanta after my sophomore year of high school. And she would drop me off at the rink in the morning and pick me up at night. And I just, that was my life, you know what I mean? And it wasn't long. By the time I was 15, 16, we were doing travel hockey. And I ended up getting... Um, recruited to play prep school up in uh, Connecticut, um, repeated my junior year, and that was an amazing opportunity. So I'm up at prep school now, <laughs> like with, you know, ties and blazers and sit-down meals, extra forks and chapel and, you know, all these kids that, like, most of them, shit, their, their concept of money and reality was just way different than mine, you know? Um, there were a handful of other kids that were a little more blue-collar background like me, but for the most part, it was a, it was a different experience, but it was a great experience because it, it, it I mean, at this school, at Pomfret School, uh, that's where I learned to paint. Like, and I, I remember I was I was nervous to paint because I, I, I drew. That's what I did. I mean, oil pastel, uh, pen, ink, whatever. I just drew, but I was nervous to paint. And... My professor at the time, uh, Mr. Brewster's flamboyantly Kate, a uh, man who was amazing. He wore a boa everywhere. And uh, he, he basically made me paint. And I'm so glad that he did because it, it's, it's been an obsession ever since, man. And, you know, um, that, that school helped me get into some other amazing schools that I wouldn't have the opportunity to go to. And, it didn't quite end so positively at, at Pomford. I repeated my junior year there, junior year there um, and my senior year, I was suspended the entire fall trimester um, for cheating on some stupid little reading quiz. There was like five, five kids in the class, and I cheated with one dude who had every wrong answer. <laughs> and that's a big no-no in prep school. So they could have they just expelled me right there, but they didn't. They suspended me. For the entire trimester, and this is like the last trimester before you get your grades in to, you know, apply to all these schools. And, uh, you know, I was taking like honors physics and all, all these advanced placement courses, which I was doing fine in, but I had to be back for finals. And I was back in Atlanta, you know, trying to take some. You know, I had a, my mother hired a a tutor from Emory University that helped me out, but that didn't do shit. I ended up failing all my all my damn finals, and when I got my, that spring when I got my uh, acceptance letters back, I got denied from seven out of eight of my schools. One of them was a shoe-in that I was getting a ride for, and I didn't get in because of my grades, and I got waitlisted at, at my last choice school, and this is like 9.30 in the morning, I got these letters, and I marched right to Andrew Brown's dorm, the dude who supplied the entire school with booze, and I was like, what you got? And this is, I'm 18 at this point, mind you, I started drinking when I was 15, and I maybe went to 10 parties from 15 to 18, but right here I'm already like you know what I'm gonna do with this shit and I tipped that it was Bacardi Lyman and I tipped it back and I remember he was just like whoa I was just I was sucking it down and I ended up blacking out 
in going to my classes and <laughs> my art teacher sent me back to my dorm room to sleep it off but I woke up and then I went to lacrosse practice fucked up <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I'm on I mean this is like if I did anything wrong, if I showed up to a class late, I was going to get expelled, and I'm doing this shit. And so, needless to say, I ended up getting expelled uh, two months before graduation. Um, but that was like the first major fuck-up that I had as a result of my drinking, um, which turned out to be a trend later in my, my 20s and you know early 30s. Um, and, you know, I ended up getting back into another prep school and did a postgraduate year and got into a really good school. And um, it was in college that my drinking got a little more normalized. Um, started to, you know, blacking out wasn't that crazy in, in college. And even though there were some heavy drinkers, I sought out. And it wasn't a conscious thing. I just ended up hanging out with the people that got fucked up the most often, stayed up the latest, drank the earliest. Like, that's, you know, mind you, I'm playing two sports, and my grades are relatively good, so, you know, it just seems pretty normal to me, man. Um, and I recall by the time I got to my sophomore year, my sophomore year, I transferred from one school to another school, and it was Colby College. That was the school that I was getting recruited to that was a shoo-in for me to get into, and I fucked up on my grade, so I transferred there to be on their team, and um, for a number of reasons, I ended up not making the team, and I quit hockey. This was everything. This was my world. This is, this is what got me up. This is what inspired me like even more than soccer even more than my art like hockey was it for me like I was obsessed and I quit because I had anted up and I failed and it hurt and I wish I could make more sense of it I just quit I never skated again um, and I ended up blacking out a lot that year and I <laughs> I barely passed a lot of my classes and ended up leaving that school and going back to my original school that I got into, Hobart College in upstate New York. Um, and even by the time I got back to Hobart, uh, you know, my soccer was falling by the wayside and, you know, I wasn't as disciplined and I was partying a lot more. Um, but I ended up graduating. I did graduate and in 2006. And, at the end of 2006, I went back to Hilton Head, South Carolina, um, where I bartended and ended up uh, doing that. I mean, it really was, <laughs> I didn't, I just didn't stop because I had friends that after college, they let up on the gas, you know, they got their careers going, they got families going and I kept going, I did. And I also remember when I graduated, I came back home, and my mother, she lost a lot of weight, and she had gotten sick. She was a smoker and, you know, working at least two jobs my whole life, and she had, like, pulmonary hypertension, and she had to wait, like, two, almost two years to be on Medicaid or Medicare or something like that, and in those two years, she really de deteriorated. And um, that, was, that was the hardest thing for me. Um, that was my worst nightmare my entire life is losing my mother and 
it was like this nightmare slowly starting to materialize in front of me. And I was still painting and I was still playing soccer a bit, um, but my drinking was taking on heavier proportions. And you know, now we're starting to do a lot more cocaine and ecstasy and all this other stuff to kind of supplement, hey, we can drink a little bit longer on this, you know? Um, and again, I could find people that would drink just as much, that would drug just as much to normalize. And um, my mother ended up passing away um, in 2009, the beginning of 2009. And I remember before that, it was getting hard for me to see her like that, see her frail. And I mean, she couldn't walk from here to there without being out of breath. And she looked like shit. And I hated seeing my mom look like shit. It hurt me. And there were times where I just, I didn't go around, and uh, there was one night in particular I went, uh, I was out and about just trying to do whatever, and I just wasn't fucking feeling it, and it was like a Friday night, and I went over to her place just to see what's up, and my sister lived with her, um, but I got there, and my sister wasn't there, and she, my, it was just completely dark in the room, in the house, and I went upstairs to her room, and she was in the room, and all the lights were out, and the TV was on, but the, there was no sound, and she was sitting there on the bed and she had pissed the bed and she asked me if I could get her some food and some water and I forgot about this night until about two months ago mm -hmm. because I fucking hated myself for that moment I was like you fucking asshole this woman the woman you love more than anything this woman that's bent over backwards for your entire life is asking you for food and water, and she's alone and pissed the bed, and you can't deal with it. Like, I just went down that road. And, uh, you know, it was three days later that uh, she had to be put in a, a medically induced coma. She was misdiagnosed with back problems. And what had happened is she, her lungs were filling up with fluid from pneumonia. And by the time they, you know, she got to the hospital, it was developed into sepsis. And over the course of the next week, she just kind of dissipated. And I'd, I'd, I had to take her off um, life support. And that was beyond hard for me. And I was so numb. Um, and I remember that night when I, when I got back to my place, I remember going to the bathroom and, and Look at myself in the mirror and be like, you are not going to fucking drink over this shit. Because I, I just, I knew in my heart, if I, if I drink over this, I, I don't know if I'm going to see the light of day. I was already drinking heavy and partying all the time and like this. It was, but I just felt, I just felt like I'd been chucked into the middle Pacific Ocean. I didn't know how to swim. And who's going to fucking love me? Who's going to understand my, my, my home, that unconditional love, that, 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 that space that I could always go to that allowed me to dream big and, and, and be vulnerable and stretch and, I mean, fucking go after dreams like I did with hockey. I had no business fucking dreaming that shit and doing it, but, like, I just, there was just something about her, and I didn't have to be around her all the time, just knowing that she was out there in the world. I just felt like I had that blanket, that safe space, like, it wasn't all on me. I didn't have to figure anything out, and worst case scenario, if I failed, it was all good. Who gives a shit? Move on. And that was gone, you know? And I did end up drinking, and it got, I mean, within six months, I, I was losing jobs. I got arrested. I was DUIs and dating strippers. And 
I mean, I was on the, the you, those little uh, mugshot newspapers. I was on that one day. And I mean, this is, this is Hilton Head, South Carolina. It's only 12 miles long, this fucking island. And I grew up on it. It's like you fart on one end, the other, someone smells it on the other. It's like that fucking small. And I'm on this fucking newspaper that says arrested for cocaine and or meth. <laughs> Looking all kinds of crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, fuck. <laughs> shit, thank, thank goodness fucking Facebook and all that shit wasn't going crazy then. But uh, <laughs> it was, that was bad enough, man. That's where I was, and I, I was spinning out of control. And I, I, I definitely, there were some things that transpired that definitely moved me in a positive direction. Um, a friend of mine that I grew up with, um, not grew up with, but I, I met in college, Taylor Bros. He, he and I drank the same way, and he was one of those friends that got his shit together after college. Like, I mean, he was the one I'd, we'd be partying all weekend, we'd wake up Sunday morning, and we'd be drinking together, you know what I mean? He was that kind of friend, and, uh, you know, he, he, he came down, he was living in D.C., and he took a train all the way down to South Carolina just to hang out with me for like a day and a half because he fucking knew. I didn't ask him to come down, he just showed up. You know, and I needed that, man, because I was, if, like, if, if, if I was a rock that was going to outer space, like, him coming down just, like, knocked me back into orbit a little bit. And another one of my good friends from, from college uh, who did a lot of traveling and uh, backpacking, like, he, he took me down to Costa Rica and backpacked for, like, two months, and he pretty much footed most of the bills down there um, just to get me out of there. And that, mm. that, I needed that, too, because I... Even though I was still drinking, man, it was something that helped me kind of continue to move forward. And I had another friend who let me move in with him. This is when I really wasn't doing well. Very dark place. Um, and he had a trailer um, with like five rooms, and he gave me a room and gave me another room to set up my easel and paints and paint. And, and for rent, I had to pay him a painting each month. And I was like six months, and that was like the best fucking thing. And I, I, looking back on it, man, it's it's absolutely you know a god thing, um, because that that allowed me to just paint and paint. And by the time I moved out of there, it was like six months, and I packed up my '92 uh, Lincoln Town car with a million dollar bill of Barack Obama on the side, and <laughs> drove to Austin, Texas, man. Um, and that was in 2012. Um, and it wasn't long before, you know, I was back in the same place except worse. You know what I mean? I was in a new town and I used to set up shop on South Congress or on the drag and with my easel and paint and everything like that. But that little, you know, nest egg of money that I'd saved up, that was, that was bleeding chips and, you know, starting to have to sell paintings that I really didn't want to sell for next to nothing. Even my good friend, I had one good friend from college that lived out um, in Killeen um, that let me stay with him for a little bit. And, um, you know, he would call me every now and again, and I would avoid his calls. At this point, I was really starting to isolate big time. Like, weeks would go by where I wasn't painting, where people were calling, and I wasn't fucking answering. And they'd be checking the hospitals and the jails, and I'd call them back like maybe a week later, be like, sorry, man. You know, but it was, there was, I had to drink all day at this juncture. And it didn't start out like that. Um, but at this juncture, I needed to drink. Um, I uh, almost died 
of uh, withdrawal one time. This was right before I moved to Austin, Texas. Uh, I've been partying hard and woke up in the morning. I was, my chest was feeling kind of tight, so I was like, oh, you know, let me take a day off or something like that. So I just chilled out and. You know, I used to have asthma as a kid, and so I thought it was just having, like, maybe some old asthma attack stuff, and it was just my chest kept getting tighter, and I started to get, like, panicky and stuff like that, and it got to the point where I was like, fuck, man, I feel like I'm having a heart attack or some shit like that, and I was home alone, I remember, and I just started getting real freaked out to the point where I ended up calling 911 on myself, and I'm glad that I did because the ambulance got there, and as soon as they got me into the little gurney there, I fucking seized up <laughs> seized up and uh, I just remember like being complete like every muscle in my body just completely tight and like the heart monitor was racing I I've never felt that feeling and I really believe if I wasn't in relatively good shape I would have died I would have had a heart attack right there and I spent the weekend in high ICU and um, when I got out the night I got out I was drinking again and it was not celebratory at all I was alone and I was crying and I was fucking scared, you know, and this was three and a half years, three years before I made it here to AA. Um, and that last night that I drank, or the last day that I drank is, is wild because it was just like every other day. I mean, I was, sometimes I'd wake up pretty panicked if I didn't have enough to drink the night before. And this night I did. Um, it was a morning I woke up and I, I it's like seven o'clock in the morning, I was starting to feel a little panicky, so I went down to this Chevron right over here on South Congress, and I got two fucking tall boys in the paper bag, and I'm like out on the side of it, like motherfuckers are jogging and going to fucking work and shit. It's a beautiful day, and I just felt like the fucking walking dead. I felt like the walking dead, and I just hated myself, and I ended up calling my friend Taylor Bros, who drove down from, uh, DC and I left a fucking crazy ass message. I don't even remember what it was, but I was like <laughs> scared. I was scared. And um, I remember the liquor store across the street opened up. I got my regular 1.75 of taka, cheap ass vodka. Yep, but it got me back to homeostasis. And uh, I remember the that evening, my friend Taylor called me and uh, I picked up and I'm like, yo, man, what's going on? You know, completely, I'm back. I got my, my booze and everything like that. Completely forgot about that message that I left him. But just the way he was just like, what's up, man? I remember that message and I'm like, fuck. But what was crazy about this, this day in particular is <coughs> I lied every day. People would ask me how I'm doing. I'd be like, I'm good. And actually, I feel like killing myself. I feel like dying. But I'm good. You know, um, but this time in particular, I told him, I was like, man, I'm scared, man. I'm fucking freaking myself out, and I don't know what to do. And he's like, well, you got any booze on you? And I was like, fuck, yes, of course. He's like, pour it out. And I fucking poured an entire, and you know what that is. At that point, it's like me pouring out air, but I did it. And I was like, well, now what, asshole? He's like, go to a meeting. And I went, I found a meeting at, um, at 1030 Westlake. And I went there and sitting on my hands because it was shaking so bad. And I just felt fucking crazy and pissed off and just, ugh. And I had no idea what to expect. And it was the best thing that could have happened to me because here I am feeling like fucking nuts. And there was just a room full of people that were 
Nobody was looking at me, nobody was judging me, and everybody was just talking about themselves and they were talking real shit. There's a quote in the book that says that um, fellowship is, is filled with people that laugh at their misfortunes and understand mine. And that's my shit, because that's how I felt. It was like, for the first time in a long time, I felt like I wasn't alone. Like, oh fuck, these people get it. Like, there was just something about the way I was drinking, I was just locked. In my head, I felt like I was the only one, like nobody understands, nobody gives a fuck, you know, fuck everybody, fuck this, fuck that. But that got, there was that, that cloud got dispersed for a moment and I could just, I was just there. And I wasn't pumped about the steps and I wasn't into a book or even like making eye contact with anybody, but that was enough for me to be like, I don't know what's going on in here, but I'm gonna come back tomorrow. And I did, and I came back. I think my second meeting was here, actually. Um, it was walking distance for me, so I would come to meetings, man, and I would just, not all together, man, but very slowly I started to listen and, and connect, and um, there were just times I felt so fucking crazy, like I, I wanted to jump out of my skin, and I'd come in here, and I'd hear somebody say some real shit, and it wasn't always inspirational. Sometimes it was somebody else that was having a hard time, and I'd be like, ah, me too, and I'd just, in that moment, again, I'm connected, I'm not alone. And um, it wasn't long before I started um, raising my hand, saying, well, Chris, I'm an alcoholic, um, which is something I wanted to say for fucking years, but I couldn't. And it was just something about being around you people that it was like this lubricant that just allowed me, or gave me permission to be me, to be what I am, to start to accept reality which I always thought acceptance meant I approve of this message and I'm cool with that and you go, thank you very much, but it doesn't, man. All acceptance means is that I'm not denying reality anymore, which in retrospect, denying reality for me was a lifeline. I mean, how can you, how can you drink the way I drink and how can you just go against yourself every single day and go against your word and let people down and this, that, and the other without making some sort of rationalization, without pinning it on somebody else, without making myself the victim, without just not dealing with it altogether. What drinking problem? What you talking about? You know, like that's, that's, that's the insanity. And it had been like that for so long that I couldn't even <coughs> see it. And there was just something about being around here and hearing people where just kind of like, even if it was just for that hour, or a couple minutes within that hour, like it, I was out of the clouds. I could deal with reality. Um, ended up getting a sponsor. I was sitting right over here, and my sponsor at the time was sitting right there, and he shared something, and it just hit me right in the chest. And I didn't even wait till after the meeting. I'd, right after he shared, I was like, yeah, you be my sponsor. <laughs> you know? and he's like, we'll talk about it after the meeting, man. And I was just... I was so happy, man, because he had something I wanted, man. Just the way he was talking about this stuff. I had it all wrong, man. I thought there was going to be a bunch of people commiserating and just holding on and talking about the good times or just a bunch of curmudgeons, man, and it's not, man. What really grabbed me was the level of honesty, number one, but that there were people that were alcoholics like I was, but they were really living, and they were talking about stuff that I could connect to, stuff that I... I, I, I was ashamed of, stuff that I was guilty of, thought, stuff that I thought was the worst part about me. They were talking about it like it's, ah, 
That's just part of my story. And that, for me, was superhuman. I wanted that so bad, and I just didn't know how to do it. And um, it, I did not get into the work right away. Um, I really felt like I needed to understand something. That was probably my biggest problem is I, I was trying to intellectualize this stuff. I felt like I needed to understand and like be excited, like, yes, I accept that I'm an alcoholic and I'm pumped to do this work and tell me what to do. And I felt like I needed to understand what God was. And I just, I wasn't raised religious and I saw it work for other people and that's cool. But for me, it's like fucking believing in Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy again. Like, it just seems so dumb. So it's like a waste of time praying. It's just like, ah, oh, fuck me. And, and so thus I thought about things. And I was waiting for this moment where the cloud was going to part and I was going to be pumped to do that fourth step. And I really thought that I was going to get to that point, but it didn't happen. Not only was I holding on to the old shit, still felt like a piece of shit, still wanted to fucking drink, but now I'm accruing new shit on top of that. And the relief that I was getting in these meetings, that shit was dissipating by the second. And I remember there was one day in particular, I was painting a mural downtown, and it was like an eight o'clock meeting, and I walked up from, walked here from downtown, it was before the meeting, and I took two steps in, and people were like, you know, laughing, it was a good fucking vibe in here, and I was just like, ugh, turned right around and walked out. <laughs> I was like, I can't deal with it right now, man. If somebody talks about gratitude, I'm gonna throw a fucking book at them. <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted to get out of my head, and I didn't know how, and I could taste the next drink, and that was a, that was a, that was a, a fork in the road, and there was one gentleman in particular, a friend of mine who had a little more time, who I used to you know, call him up and burn a hole in his ear and, you know, tell him about everything I was worried about. And he'd be like, yo, you getting to that four step yet? And I'd be like, no, 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 but listen, listen, let me tell you about my girlfriend. She's pissing me off, da, 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 whatever it was. And there was one time I, call, I called him and at the top of the conversation, he asked me, did you get into that four step yet? And I said, no. And he hung up. And I was like, this motherfucker. <laughs> you know, but I think, I, to this day, every time I see him and I think about it, I thank him for it because that was... Talk about the clouds being moved for a second and getting a taste of reality. I could taste the next drink, and I knew what that looked like, and it scared the shit out of me. I didn't know what this looked like, and I'm very used to saying fuck it, so at that point I said fuck it in a positive direction. I don't know what this is going to look like. I don't, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an artist. I, is this going to make me boring? Am I going to be uninspired? I don't give a shit. These people have something that I, I, I want, so I got into that work, and it was somewhere between the fifth and the ninth step where I started to get what people were talking about. Um, after the fifth step, I, I didn't quite feel so alone anymore. And moving forward into the amends process, I didn't feel so alone. I, was, I had somebody, I felt like I had a team again. You know, and we game plan each one of the uh, amends. And even, even, man, even after some of the first easier, low-hanging fruits of amends, I started to really get what people were talking about. That's when days started to go by where I wasn't thinking about drinking. That's where I didn't feel like such a piece of shit anymore. There was hope, like maybe, maybe, maybe one day at a time I could be sober and I didn't want to drink. And I remember there was, this was probably like six months into my sobriety. Um, and I was painting downtown on 6th Street on Saturday night and at one of the bars. And I remember I was setting up my easel to paint. And 
I got a tap on my shoulder and I looked over and it was the bartender with two big ass shots mm. of whiskey. And he was like, yeah? And I was just like, nah, man, I'm good. Just went back to setting up, painted. Night went by, was breaking down and it just hit me while I was breaking down my, my shit. Like, fuck. Like I said, no, and I meant it. Like prior to that, I probably wouldn't have drank, but I would have wanted to punch my way out of the room. Everything would have started pissing me off. Like I could not have been in that fucking environment and painted and been in some sort of like pleasant place to create something. Fuck that. I would have been like the Incredible Hulk. Like I just, there's something in this work. There's something in this action. There's something in this fellowship that allows me, it's not a fucking high. There, there are good times and there are bad times, but it is a neutral place. It's actually authentically what I thought I found in that first drink where I'm not, if I'm afraid, if I'm anxious, whatever, I'm just not fighting it. I'm not running from it. I'm neutral. And it could be anything. And, and it's in this neutrality where it's so funny. I always thought that I, I, needed, I needed to be on this team. I needed to go to that school. I needed to be with that girl. I needed to have this amount of money. People needed to see me in this light in order for me to be happy, in order for me to feel like I'm something, like I have meaning in my life, like there's purpose, to be comfortable in my own skin, to have confidence. And I had it ass backwards. All I needed to do was be able to connect, be no better and no worse than anybody, but I didn't know how to fucking do that. And if I could think my way into this neutral place, I probably wouldn't be here. The name of this game for me today and, and going forward is always action. I mean, how I feel right now as compared to an hour ago is night and fucking day. I was shitting bullets. <laughs> fucking like, fuck, we gotta do this shit again. I gotta tell my story. God damn it. And now I just feel, I feel good. I feel calm. I feel connected. I feel useful. And the idea of drinking seems ridiculous. And that's something for this alcoholic that is nothing short of a miracle because I did not want to drink for years. I tried quitting, I tried moving, I tried breaking up with this girlfriend, I tried changing jobs or even fucking moving to Texas. <laughs> and I just ended up with the same thing, me in my motherfucking head. And to this day, I know two ways to get out of my head and one of them's drinking and that shit doesn't work anymore. This is the real deal. And I feel like um, a friend of mine had a really good analogy for I'll end it with this. My, when, when I got sober and I was trying to figure out the higher power thing, the God thing, my sponsor asked me to think of an endless, endless stream of unconditional love. And understand it. He was like, what, what comes to mind? I told him my mother. And it's the truth. Not that the, my, my mother's God, my mother's not God, but there's something that was flowing through her every single day that allowed me to let go, allowed me to not fight, allowed me to just do my best. And 
that's what I have for real right now. Almost six years ago, if I would have said this to myself six years ago, I would have been like, you're full of fucking shit. But my mother's more alive in me today than she's ever been. And that's because of this program. And it's not because people are checking up on me and I'm getting what I want or I have this amount of money or I'm in a relationship. It, it, it's, it's like that because I'm giving it. This program has given me an ability to get outside my head and think of other people and be useful to other people. And that doesn't mean I gotta open a soup kitchen. It just means that I gotta disrupt this <laughs> ceaseless stream of me, myself, and I for minutes out of the day just to be useful to somebody in this program, in a relationship, in my profession, anything. Just think of somebody else, be useful to somebody else. And wouldn't you know, when I'm not thinking about myself, do I get peace, more peace than I've ever gotten. And it's not always like that. I still get overwhelmed. I still get sad, depressed, angry, the whole gamut. But now there is a real solution that does not involve me drinking or drugging that allows me to get out of my head and really, truly participate in life. And believe me when I tell you this, that I want to live as long as I can. I really, really do. I'd like to die of old age and shit in my pants somewhere. <laughs> but but I, truly, I truly mean this when I say that if I were to go tomorrow, I'd be happy because the past six years, almost six years, I've been able to do my best, which is something that was killing me before. I wanted to do my best, but I couldn't. I was killing myself drinking, and I couldn't stop. And now I have a choice today, and it's all because of you, these steps, and something that I have no idea what it is, and that's God. So thank you for my sobriety.